This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Jonathan Stoddard as he shares practical wisdom on training elders and deacons. Jonathan is the pastor of Jordan Valley Church in West Jordan, Utah. This episode was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2023 General Assembly and is sponsored by Christian Healthcare Ministries. Let's listen as Jonathan provides a helpful template for your next officer training. When God chose a people, uh, he picked Abraham to be the father of that nation. And Abraham was a shepherd. When God told Moses that he would redeem his people and he spoke to him in that burning bush... Moses was out tending flocks. When God picked the greatest king that Israel would ever know, he picked a shepherd. And when that king would write one of the best-known psalms, he would begin it with, The Lord is my shepherd. When Jesus looks out at the crowd who is coming to them and he has compassion on them, he says they are like sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus restores Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, he tells him to feed my sheep. And then when Paul gathers the Ephesian elders, he warns them to be on their guard because I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Timothy Lanick notes time after time, text after text, the shepherd is called back to serve as a frame of reference for evaluating leadership. Uh, This metaphor of shepherding is so common in Scripture that Timothy Lanik calls it a root metaphor in Scripture, one that provides a primary organizing worldview for understanding what it means to care for God's people. Shepherding God's flock through the wilderness onto that promised land is one of the fundamental callings of all elders. And that means that if you don't have fellow elders who are called to the work and have the heart of shepherding, it is going to hurt the flock. It means that if you don't have deacons uh, that understand the importance and have a heart for shepherding themselves and understand its priority, the flock is going to suffer. And so how do you train such men so that you can have partners in ministry, so that you can really feel like you have fellow shepherds caring for this flock. 
How do you develop a team of shepherds who will share in that burden of leading these particular group of God's people through the barren wilderness? Well, in this seminar, my goal is to get you at least a little bit closer to that goal so that you can have a team of shepherds after God's heart. And I will just tell you, there's nothing more rewarding than shepherding part of God's flock with a team that all has that same goal, same philosophy of ministry, same heart, and walking through the desert together to that glorious destiny. And so I'm going to uh, cover really three things here. Uh, first, talk briefly on the role of elders and deacons. Uh, second, outline a training process. And just as a note, there are lots of different training processes. This is just one that we've used at uh, the church where I serve, and it has worked well. It's by no means the only way to do it, but I think sometimes uh, we just want really practical information. And so I'm going to give you the nuts and bolts of how I've done it. There are many other ways to do it, but this will give you a nice uh, template that you can use to at least get you started. And then third, I want to talk briefly about what about the current elders and deacons that you have, and how do you uh, shepherd them on towards this? And then, Lord willing, I'll have some time for your questions at the end. So first, the role of elder and deacon. In order to train uh, men for these roles, you need to know what role it is that you are training them for. So imagine if you're teaching your child to drive— uh, and they're gaining in confidence, they're ready uh, to drive on their own, they turn 16, and you buy them a car. Now, I realize most of us are pastors, probably don't have that kind of disposable income, but imagine with me, uh, you buy them a 2016 Honda Civic, uh, safe car, good gas mileage, it's reliable, it's not too embarrassing for a teenager to drive, win-win. There's one catch, it's a manual transmission, and you've been training them on your Honda Odyssey, which has a six-speed automatic transmission. They're going to face some whiplash <laughs> in more ways than one as they do that work of driving a manual. You didn't train them for the job, for the car that they're going to be driving. And I think many elders and deacons also experience a sense of whiplash because they aren't trained for the specific jobs they end up being called to do. And if you were just to look at some of the officer training that maybe you've run or that you've been part of, and you didn't know what the job was that these people are being trained for, but you just looked at what they're being taught, what they're doing, what does this training package look like, what job would you think they're being trained for? And would it match up with the job you're actually going to ask them to do? Often, elders and deacons experience this sense of whiplash because the training doesn't match up with the job that they're called to do. And this is how you can have a church with even a number of elders and deacons, and yet for the pastors here, you still feel like you're doing the majority of the ministry. So we need to first understand what is the role and the job for elders and deacons so we can build training that is reflective of that role. And to do that, let's start with Acts chapter 6. It says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows were being discriminated against the daily distribution of food. So the twelve called a meeting of all the believers. They said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the word of God, not running a food program. 
And so, brothers, select seven men who are all well-respected and are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility, and then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and the teaching of the word. And I want you to imagine with me, if you were in this situation, what uh, possible choices did the apostles have as they're brought, you know, these complaining congregants come to them and say, you need to do something. What could the apostles have done? And maybe to make it a little easier to think about, we could update the scenario to today where it is 930 on a Sunday morning and somebody comes to you and says, hey, pastor, the men's toilet is backed up. (laughs) What do you do? Anyone ever had this happen to you? All right. Yeah. (laughs) And well, some of us, our response is, oh, shoot. Okay, let me go take care of that real quick. Right. And you go in there, and you're trying to unclog it, and hope, I hope I don't stain my shirt and get done before the service starts, right? Those of us who tend to be people pleasers, which probably most of us in ministry struggle with that, we want to help people, and it is so easy for us to say, oh, I'll do that when a congregant comes with a request or a complaint. But what would the problem have been if the apostles responded that way? Well, suddenly, you know, they only have so many hours in the week, And some of those hours are not being focused on the ministry of word and prayer, but instead directed to running a food program or unclogging a toilet, whatever the the, the case might be. And when you look through the book of Acts, which I'd encourage you to do if you haven't, time after time up to Acts chapter 6, what does it say? It is through the ministry of the word and prayer that the church is growing and spreading. Well, another problem if the apostles had said, okay, I'll take care of it, is it would have made them too much like Jesus, which either leads to burnout, because none of us are Jesus, or there are some people who are incredibly gifted and can maybe pull it off, at least for a time being. But what I found is when the pastor is doing everything, it tends to lead people to worship the pastor more than Jesus. You see, one of the reasons that we need shared leadership is to remind ourselves to remind and demonstrate to the congregation that we are only under shepherds, that we are all under shepherds of the great shepherd. And and one of the implications of that is that no one person has the time or the talents or the coverage to care for everybody in the church. We all have limits to our shepherding. And so we need a plurality of people. That's why we shouldn't try to do everything. Uh, Another response could have been, not my problem. Right? The longer you're, you're in ministry and maybe the longer you've been in the church, this tends to be a response when somebody comes to complain about something that you don't care about. Say, well, not my problem. What's the problem with that, though? The ministry of the word would have been hindered because people would that discontent with the running of this food program would have kind of boiled over and distracted everybody so that there is no more room for that ministry of the word. And so what do the apostles propose? This, not to do everything themselves and not to ignore it and do nothing about it, but they multiply the ministry through the creation of a new role for caring for physical needs. And I think this shows us a really important principle that the health of a church will only rise to the health of its deacon, whatever is lower, the deacon or the elder ministry, right? You can have incredible word ministry at your church, but if your diaconal ministry is down here, 
that's going to be a lid on, and all this extra potential is going to get wasted. Right? Very practically, if the deacons forget to clear the uh, um, parking lot after a big snowstorm, I guarantee the ministry of the word is going to be hindered because people can't get into the church. Uh, on the flip side, though, you could have amazing diaconal ministry, but if your ministry of the word is down here, that ministry of the word is going to cap out the potential of that deacon ministry. Right? You, you could have an incredible food program, but people would be starving spiritually. But when both things are running well, what happens? Well, Acts 6-7. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Alexander Strauch writes, I am convinced that Acts 6-4 is one of the most important verses in the New Testament for church elders. Elders are so easily sidetracked. So many good things demand time and energy. There are always so many people who need counsel, programs that meet, need administering, and meetings to attend. Thus, the shepherd's time for prayer, Bible study, and teaching the word of God is slighted. Okay, let me take, talk briefly now about teaching and ruling elders. Uh, our book of church order says there is one class of office for elder. But as you all know, if you look at the process by which those two types of elders are trained, it is completely different. And this leads then to, again, some whiplash. Because certain elders are trained for in a very different way than other elders, and yet then they're asked to do some of the same types of things. And people don't feel, particularly ruling elders, feel capable or qualified or confident to do those things because their training didn't match what teaching elders go through. And so what we need to do in our training plans is to try to decrease that gap between teaching elder training and ruler elder training. Because in the end, they're being trained to be shepherds. All elders are shepherds. Okay? The, the amount of time that you have to do shepherding might vary, but every elder is first and foremost called to be a shepherd. But most officer training at least from what I've seen, tends to be spending a lot of time about the BCO and the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then they throw guys out there to shepherd. Well, those probably aren't the best ways to prepare folks to shepherd. Would a congregation ever elect a pastor if they never heard him preach? Never, right? And yet, why do we so often ask our congregations to vote on elders and deacons without the congregation having seen them serve in, in ministry? How can they make an informed vote on their calling to ministry? Let's look a little bit of the role of deacon. Uh, Book of Church Order 7.2 says, The office of deacon is not one of rule, but rather of service, both to the physical and spiritual needs of people. Now, I think this is correct, but I would say also there is a distinction that we need to understand between rule and leadership. The office of deacon is not one of rule, but it is still one of leadership. And I think this is where people often get tripped up, because it is often the people who are best at showing up early to help get chairs set up for the worship service who end up getting nominated and serving as deacons. But those folks generally aren't the best deacons. They're great servants, but they're not necessarily 
great leaders. Right? Go back to Acts chapter 6. Certain widows weren't getting food. It was this complex problem that required leadership in order to get solved. Right? The, the apostles weren't getting notified about this because they needed more volunteers to stuff sandwich bags to feed everybody. Right? But yet, isn't that what we often look for when we're looking for deacons? Who's showing up to set up chairs? Who's willing to stuff sandwiches and bags and serve them to people? No, the, the, this kind of proto-deacon role that we see in Acts 6 is not one of handing out sandwiches. It's one that required mature, godly, and capable men that were dealing with an organizational and cultural conflict. Right? That requires leadership. And if your deacons are great at serving but not great at leading, what I found is you will probably become the de facto deacon. Because if your deacons aren't seen as leaders, the congregation aren't going to go to them with the problems that need leadership to solve them. They're going to go to the person that they're going to see as a leader. And more often than not, that's going to be you. And that is the very moment when you have an Act 6 problem. Right? Because the congregation is coming to you to deal with needs, dealing with physical needs. And it means you don't really have deacons. Deacons aren't there, so you have plenty of volunteers to set up chairs for worship. Deacons are there to take certain organizational and leadership problems off your plate so that you can focus on the ministry of word and prayer. Okay, so that's some foundation. Uh, next, how do we train people for this? I'm just going to hit a few wave tops, and in a minute I'm going to throw up a link here uh, to where you can actually download the packet that we give our officer candidates. Um, that, and I'm going to walk through that, and you can keep it as a template. Uh, also, I'm working, I've got a lot of interest on this topic. I'm working on writing a book on this that goes into way more detail. The rough draft is done, and, but it's not shareable yet. But if you want me to share it with you, once it's shareable, uh, I'm going to give my email here too. Just email me, and then I'll email you all a copy of it as well if you'd like that. All right. First, let's start with denominations. A common mistake I think we make is we make nominations for elders and deacons too difficult. I think you should make the nominations process nominating very easy. You don't want the nomination stage to be a vetting stage. Instead, you need to get the congregation to trust that you have a robust process to vet these candidates and that the congregation will have ample opportunities to observe them in ministry and then vote on them. Right? So because you have all that on the back end, make nominations easy. And how do you do that? One, don't require the person's permission to be nominated, which I think is opposite of how often churches do it. Don't require the person's permission to be nominated. It's too easy for a person to reject a nomination for unbiblical reasons or unfounded fears. And then people will hear, oh, I asked that person, and he said he wasn't interested, and so then no one else will nominate them, when even perhaps a good chunk of the church would really love that person to serve. 
people maybe would have an individual that they would like to nominate, uh, but they don't get the chance to talk to them before the nominations process close, and so they don't nominate them. Uh, additionally, if someone knows they're not morally qualified to serve, and you require an individual to in the congregation to ask them if it's okay to nominate them, you suddenly put that person in a really awkward spot to kind of come up with a reason for why they say they don't think they should serve. Right? Instead, let these people get nominated, and then within the context and privacy of you know, the, the current elders in the session, they can decline the nomination. You want to get a lot of nominations, and here's why. This will be one of the key ways that God will confirm and start his calling of people for this role. Right? If you think of it, the more nominations someone gets, the more it kind of pushes them over the edge to want to serve in this way because lots of people are recognizing them. For instance, my dad was just elected and installed as an uh, elder at our church last summer. And he had lots of reservations of serving in the church where his son was the pastor. He worried what people would think about it, right? Is it looking too ingrown or, or whatever it might be? And if someone had come and talked to him about serving, he would have declined to be nominated. But we followed this process, and he ended up getting uh, nine nominations from the congregation, right? more than any other person which tipped him over the edge to realize, okay, well, lots of people in the congregation don't seem to be worried about this. Maybe I should go and take that next step to serve. Uh, people can get a sense of their calling from being nominated. Next, let's look at, uh, oh, one other thing on nominations. I think it's usually good to require a minimum number of nominations. Uh, two has often worked well for us. That seems to be the perfect kind of balance uh, in the last round of nominations we did, we had 20 people nominated, and this is in a fairly small church, for elder or deacon, and out of 20, nine people required, received the required two nominations uh, to start the training. A couple principles of the training. Uh, this training is going to be very demanding. Can you hold your question to the end? <laughs> uh, the, the training is going to be very demanding. And people, when you first introduce training, if it looks like this, their immediate response is going to be, this is too much work. <laughs> now, I would resist the temptation to lower the amount of training because of that response. What I found is if someone is too busy to do the training, it's likely they aren't called to serve in that role. If they are called to serve in that role, time and time again, I found that they will find time to do the work. What you need to do in the church is create a culture where people understand that these, are, these roles are real jobs with real expectations. And the way you do that is from the beginning, setting a high bar for what is expected in terms of a commitment. So if there's a person, everyone of us has had this situation, who you, in the church, this guy would be a great elder or a great deacon, but, you know, he's got this job that keeps him away for half the time, and so we don't see him very often. And you're going to be tempted to maybe lower some of the standards in order to allow this guy to make it through uh, because you think he's got so much to offer. Don't do that. Right? If they're called, they'll find a way. And if not, well, they aren't called. And because what will happen is if you lower the standards for one person, 
it's going to decrease the morale of every other candidate or every other officer who's serving. He's like, well, we're doing all this work, and why is there a double standard for this guy? Right? And it will, in the end, result in less ministry being done on, as a whole. So in training, you want to figure out how much ministry, how much work would I expect of these guys during a very busy season of ministry, and then you want to develop a training plan that is going to be just a little bit above what that is like. You kind of want to do a stress test with these candidates because how they handle the training is a great indicator of how they're going to handle stress in ministry and how they're going to deal with ministry, right? So if during the training, are they always turning in assignments late? Well, I guarantee they're always going to be turning in the session minutes late. Are they always needing reminders during the training? Well, I guarantee that if they get installed, they are always going to need reminders for things that need to get done around the church. And you want to identify those issues during the training when it's way easier to talk about it and address it than after they're elected and and now it becomes kind of awkward or easy for there to um, be relational tension and, and stuff like that. Don't be afraid of holding guys to high standards. They are going to be shepherding God's flock. That is a high calling. Let's make sure we train people for that high calling. And the people that are called will often rise up to those demands, and it may surprise you which guys there are that do rise up. Uh, One of our deacons uh, who did this training uh, about four, some years ago, was very self-conscious about all this. He doesn't have a college education. His English is not his first language. And he doesn't think he's very smart. He's worked in a factory his whole life, though he is smart. And he hadn't read a book or written a paper since high school, which was like 30 years ago for him. Right? But every week, he would show up to our training with a stack of college-ruled paper and handwritten assignments that he had done. Right? He found a way because he had a sense of that calling. Now, how do you answer that objection that you'll get? Well, this is too much work. You can't demand this of folks that are doing this on top of a full-time job. And the way you answer that objection is that the first time you run through this training, you should do the training yourself and do it in your off time. If you are in the trenches with these candidates and doing the work with them, at night when they're doing it, and the way that I would do it is every week when an assignment was done was due, I would email all the candidates my work so they could see my assignment. And when you do that, their trust of you and their willingness to follow you is going to grow exponentially because they see you as a partner and a, and a, and a peer instead of someone just yelling at them from the sidelines uh, to do more work. Another key thing before you start the training is you need to have worked out where you're going in the training because you're going to be asking a lot of these candidates. And so you need to instill in them a confidence that you actually know where you're taking them. Nothing is going to sap their motivation or cause them to question, is it worth doing all this work if I'm not even sure that John knows where we're going to end up with all this training? Right? Or if it feels like he's just kind of you know, winging it each week with making up new assignments. It'd just be like if you showed up for, say, a guided backpacking trip 
through Denali National Park. And you get there and you meet your guide and you quickly realize that uh, the guide is still learning how to read a map. <laughs> it is not exactly going to instill confidence to follow him out into bear country. People need to trust that you can take them where you're going. Right? That's a key aspect of leadership. So have a training plan with details of what each week looks like, what expectations there are, what the process is, and have all of that done before you start. So on that first time when all of these nominees show up, you can hand them this as like a guide and say, hey guys, this is where we're going. Do you think you're up for it? And make sure it's a realistic plan. And how do you know that? Well, you'll know it because you're going through it with them the first time you do run that training. Right? You don't want to be the leader who is yelling at people from the ATV as they're struggling up the hill, right? Or even encouraging them, hey, good job, guys, while you're you know, not sweating on the side-by-side while they're struggling. Right? Doing this together will create a band of brothers amongst your shepherds. All right, let's look at some of the stages of training. And this is where, if you go to this URL, um, you can download the copy of the training plan that we've used. I'll give you a minute to pull that up. So in this training, there are multiple phases. And again, I'm very specific. This is just how we've done it. It's not the only way to do it but feel free to copy it um, if you want and tweak it. The first phase is the vetting phase. This takes about four weeks. And we want to examine the candidate's character, calling, and capacity. So with their character, what does that mean? We have them fill out a fairly exhaustive character self-assessment that they then turn in. Uh, But we also then send, if they're married, to their spouse a spouse assessment that they can, the spouse can do privately. And we ask that spouse about, you know, is your husband faithful to you? We ask about alcohol use, spiritual leadership in the home, self-discipline, uh, any instances of physical or verbal abuse. Uh, we ask them, do you think that your husband is able to care for you all and still give the four or so hours a week to the church that we would expect in this role? Uh, we ask them, if your husband cared for the church like he cares for you and the family, would that make the church a better place or a worse place? And sometimes they're very honest in that. (laughs) Peer assessments. We also ask each candidate to give us the name of a neighbor or a coworker, preferably a non-believer, as a reference. And then we send a uh, character uh, survey to that person. Ask them, you know, does this guy seem like he's devoted to his family, his wife and his kids? Is he faithful to them? Does he show self-discipline? Is he humble? Uh, we asked them, if, if you learned that this man was a, a leader in his church, would that give you more or less respect for that church? If you want to do a background check, this would be the time to do that. Uh, one th- key thing, though, a mistake we often make is, I love the character qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Uh, I think they're incredibly profound, and yet one mistake we make is we think that those character qualifications are sufficient for someone to serve in one of these roles, right? You need those character qualifications, but that is not a description of the job they're being called to serve in, right? So you, you need the character, but it's not sufficient, right? There may be jobs 
that you are qualified to serve in, but you have zero desire to actually serve in that job right? because of the work or who you're going to be working with or its location, right? And it's very same for elders and deacons. Uh, this is, again, one of those sources of whiplash because when our training focuses so much on the character qualifications, you're never actually telling them what the job is they're going to do, and then they get into the job and they start doing it. It's like, whoa, I wasn't prepared for this. Elders and deacons need to meet those character qualifications, uh, but that's not enough. They need to have a desire to serve. And so this is the other thing you look at during that vetting process. They're calling. And what you should do is create a job description for elders and deacons where you explain this is the type of ministry that you'll be doing. Uh, this is how much time is expected. And there's three things you want these guys to wrestle with. First, do you want to do this? That is incredibly important when you're asking guys who are often doing this on top of a full-time job. Right? They need to want to do it. Do you have the time or capacity to do it? And the training will help answer that question. If they can do the training, they can definitely do the job. But there's also a number of reasons why someone might not have that capacity in order to serve. Maybe they have a, an extremely demanding job right now. Uh, maybe they have a kid who has particular needs and, and they need to give them extra attention during this phase of life. Those are all valid reasons why they might not be called to serve that have nothing to do with their character. Right? And yet it's good to help shepherd them to say, you know what, maybe now's not the right time to serve, uh, but let's pray that God will provide that opportunity uh, to give you some more margin so that you could serve someday down the road. And then the other piece is, are you theologically aligned with our church, right? Can you affirm our doctrinal standards? During this first phase is where most people will drop out. Generally, uh, we've seen about 50% of the people drop out during this phase. We also keep names private during this phase in order to make it easy for people to drop out uh, without you know, any sort of sense of shame or anything like that. The next phase is teaching, and this takes about 10 weeks. This is when I recommend you make the names of all the candidates public so that people can be praying for these candidates and can be observing them in ministry. Because again, why would you expect a congregation to vote on people they haven't been able to observe in ministry? So all of the candidates will start off together. Then about halfway through, we break off into a separate elder and deacon track. And this is probably the hardest phase of the training. There's a lot of reading. We have the elders read about 1,000 pages, write about 30 pages of assignments. Uh, deacons read about 600 pages, write about 600, or sorry, 200 pages of assignments. One objection you might get is someone say, I'm not good at reading, right? particularly with the, the deacon candidates. This ha happens more often. Again, people will find a way. Uh, we had one man who's uh, just retired, and he hadn't read a book in a long time, and he was kind of worried about reading all these books. And his wife offered, say, well, I'll read the books aloud for you. <laughs> and uh, that kind of motivated him to say, no, I'll do this. This will be good for me to, to, to brush up on my reading skills. He found a way. Uh, or you might get a stack of handwritten assignments every week because one of the candidates doesn't know how to type. This part, again, don't, I would discourage you from decreasing these requirements. It's People are going to forget a lot of these things they, they learn in this phase. The intention is not 
to just give them a bunch of information. It is to test them. It's part of the character test. Right? How do these people react when giving, given something difficult? Because how they react under that stress is going to be a great indicator to how they're going to react to the stresses of ministry. During this phase, also, you want to be instilling in all the candidates some of the particular philosophies of ministry for your church. So, for instance, we have a whole series of articles that we've written on why our worship service is structured the way it is, uh, that all the elders read. That way, when it's their turn to lead worship, they aren't asking a million questions about what to do, but we've instilled some of that philosophy in them. Phase three, uh, training, is eight weeks. This is the practical application. This is where we want guys to get their hands dirty to do ministry, one, to see are they gifted for it, do they like doing it, and also to let the congregation observe them, right? Are these people that I want to receive ministry from? So for the elder candidates, we have them lead worship several times, uh, exhort, uh, do membership interviews, write a newsletter, teach classes, join in home and hospital visits, contact the prayer list. So every other session meeting, uh, we essentially have shepherding lists that every elder, we reach out to every person in the church. So we give a chunk of those names to the elder candidates to reach out to those people to ask how to pray for them. Uh, Attend session meetings. And for each thing that they're doing, we are giving them feedback. Uh, So the way this has worked for us is we have uh, myself and our associate pastor and then the current elders will each kind of get and deacons all get someone they're mentoring going through the process, right? So when your guy that you're mentoring Get, you know, leads worship that next week. He meets with that, you know, the guy he's mentoring, and you give him feedback on what he did well, what he didn't do well, ways to improve, and then he'll have usually about two other times to lead worship uh, so he can practice in that. For the deacon candidates, I found the best test and thing to have them do is organize some sort of church work day, right? Because this hits all the wickets. It, it gets, uh, are they able to recruit people to come? Are they able to organize it? Are they able to manage things during the day? Does it run smoothly? All of those things, you knock it off on a Saturday by having the deacon candidates run a work day. Uh, we also do a, a question and answer panel where current elders and deacons give advice to the candidates and they get asked questions, which has been so awesome to see because you see the current elders and deacons are speaking to these candidates in a way that maybe I can't as well and instilling in them some of those particular philosophies of ministry that we have at the church. Uh, And then the last phases are the examinations, elections, and installation. Most of this is fairly self-explanatory, just a couple things with it. At the end, before you do the elections and examinations, check in with every candidate's wife and say, hey, they've been doing a lot these last six months. Have they still been able, do they have that capacity to care for you and the kids while doing this work to make sure that it's not going to negatively impact home life? Do you still support them in doing this is a great question to ask. Uh, Then there's the exam. It's a a real exam, but the guys have done so much work that generally the exam is kind of an encouraging moment where they get to synthesize a lot of the things that they've learned and show that uh, to the folks doing the examination. When you have the installation service, I would recommend uh, giving them all something to mark that accomplishment. And really, this is part of building that culture in the church of that these are real jobs that we're calling men to. So what I do is I give guys a rock. 
and I take that rock and I glue it to a little wooden base and I hand it to them as a representative of the weight of the ministry that they are now going to be carrying on their shoulders. And one of my deacons says, he jokes with me, every time he looks at that rock, it's gotten bigger. (laughs) And one of the most rewarding parts of all of this is the sense of accomplishment that the guys have when they make it through. Uh, One of our new deacons who got uh, installed last summer, he'd become a Christian about four and a half years ago. Uh, I still remember the day, it was Palm Sunday, him and his family showed up at our church, never been to a Christian church in their life, and over those next few months, continue to come, and they make professions of faith, and we have a you know, beautiful family baptism of mom, dad, and kids, and they have just been soaking up the gospel in these years, and he'd had a rough upbringing, but there had been a miraculous work of God in his life and in his family's life. And to see him standing up there when he's getting installed and seeing his wife's smile on her face because of all that represented for him uh, is one of the you know, most rewarding things that you can see. Right? Making the training hard gives these guys a sense of confidence for ministry that is really hard to replicate. Okay, last thing, and then we'll have a little bit of time for questions. What about your current elders and deacons? <laughs> So one thing that I learned uh, early on is it is better to have no elders and deacons than unqualified elders or deacons. Um, Don't be afraid to de-particularize the church if it comes to that. That happened uh, where I served, and we became a church plant, and we started all over, and it was actually really good for us. As you think of your current elders and deacons, uh, I've come up with four categories that I think can be helpful to figure out where people are. First, is the qualified and teachable guys. These are the best. They have the qualifications and the desire. They just need some coaching, some training. Uh, Then you have qualified but unteachable ones. This is a person who maybe checks all the boxes for the character, but is maybe resistant to change, resistant to your leadership. Maybe they hold too tightly to how things were done in the past. Another category is unqualified but teachable. Uh, These are generally men who meet many, if not all, the character qualifications, but they don't actually have the desire or particular gifts needed for ministry. And they may have been pressured into that role with a previous pastor because, oh, we need some more elders, we need some more deacons, and so they get slotted in that spot. And then there's guys that are unqualified and unteachable, which with them, they're going to be the most... Uh, difficult. Maybe there's someone who's been in the church for a long time. They're very established in their position, but they're unwilling to change, unable to see they aren't qualified. And with these people, uh, you just need to count the cost of what it's going to mean to bring change and, and what are you, do you think you're able to do. And as you figure out where all your current guys are, one of the most important things is simply to pray that God would make it clear for each person if he's called to serve. And I've discovered God has a remarkable way of answering those prayers. Uh, People will step down. They'll have a change of heart. People will suddenly move for a new job. And then start working with the session to develop a more robust and demanding view of these offices. This is one of those places where you're going to need to lead them, coach them, help them. And as you do this, I guarantee you're going to get pushback amongst the current officers. 
And most of it is because they're kind of self-conscious, right? If we start upping the standards, well, I didn't sign up for that, right? They're feeling that whiplash. Uh, can I do this? And so you need to be sensitive to that, give time for them to digest that, and to shepherd them in that, and help them see that in the end, you are going to be happiest if you're in a role that you're, where your gifts line up with what you're called to do, right? And that can take a while to get someone there, but often God can do a lot of that work. And then a great thing to do is the first time you try to really revamp your training in a significant way is encourage all the current elders and deacons to go through the training together. Uh, this provides actually an easy way for those that maybe aren't qualified uh, to, be, to realize that and to step out. Uh, it, it allows everyone to start on the same playing field, where right? now everyone has gone through the same training, uh, has that same philosophy of ministry, used to those extra responsibilities. Um, last week, uh, I was doing a, a prayer walk during, uh, through some of the trails near our house, and uh, we've had an incredible amount of snow in Salt Lake uh, this last winter. The ski resorts close to us got 900 inches, broke 900 inches of snow. That's a lot, a lot of snow. And most of the time, Salt Lake is this high desert, but this spring, the hills and the deserts have just bloomed in color with all kinds of wildflowers, and it's the most beautiful thing I've seen. And I was walking, and I just happened to be reading and praying through Isaiah 35, which it says this, Even the wilderness and desert will be glad in those days. The wasteland will rejoice and blossom with spring crocuses. Yes, there will be an abundance of flowers and singing and joy. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return. They will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. And brothers and sisters here, this is what we're shepherding people towards, taking them through the wilderness to that promised land. And to shepherd the flock, there's lots of difficulties. People complain about all kinds of things. And you need good elders and deacons to walk with us, to care for that flock that God has called you to. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.